Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Curzon Podcast. For this week's show, we'll be bringing you a Q&A with esteemed filmmaker Whit Stillman and some special guests. At a recent screening of Love and Friendship at the Curzon Soho Cinema, we were lucky enough to be joined by the writer and director Whit Stillman, known for the films Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Damsels in Distress, as well as his spiky Jane Austen adaptation that we were celebrating that night. Next up, you'll hear Whit, along with Master of Ceremonies and Curzon Events, Michael Garrard, and very special guests, Love and Friendship breakout star Tom Bennett, known for his work on Phone Shop and the David Brent film Life on the Road, as well as regular Armando Iannucci collaborator Justin Edwards, whose voice you may recognise from The Thick of It and The Death of Stalin. If you want even more of a wit fix, you can check out his curated collection on Curzon Home Cinema, available now. Without further ado, here is Michael Garrard talking to the great Wit Stillman with Tom Bennett and Justin Edwards. It's really nice, you know, to host Q and A at the cinema with a film that's sort of off of the uh, promotional uh, tour. We can kind of get a different sort of perspective, I think, on it. Uh, I think a lot of you here will have seen the film or be familiar with the book as well. Uh, so yes, I'm really looking forward to hearing your questions. But I'm, I am going to start off. So first of all, uh, I understand in, in previous films that you've made, uh, the script was kind of more fixed at the point you came to production. Whereas with Love and Friendship, you developed the roles after casting, particularly those of Sir James and Charles Vernon. Is, is that correct? Yes. I think the first, the first couple of films I started writing an additional scene or something like that. So, Damsels in Distress, we needed to explain the bad English accent. And I always meant to do that. And we were given an extra day of shooting. Mm. So we explained one of the characters very bad in English accents, which didn't stop everyone on the internet from attacking the, 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 the actually purposely bad accent. And then um, we were shooting the pilot for this Amazon series, uh, The Cosmopolitans, in Paris. And Joe Lewis, the executive, um, said, couldn't we have another scene with Chloe Sevigny? So overnight I wrote a scene for Chloe Sevigny, which turned out to like my favorite scene in, the, in it. And then I was sort of a little concerned about how limited the script was to dialogue between Kate Beckinsale and Chloe Sevigny. It was very, very dominant. It's dominant in the movie now, but it was even more dominant in the script. And um, we were having a table reading of um, of the film before we started shooting. You know, everywhere, all the actors reading the script. And we had one actor represented there on a, um, a computer screen. It was just... 
this nice fellow on a computer screen. And he didn't really have any lines in the first third of the film. So he was just there. <laughs> and the table reading was going really, really badly. It was like tragic. And um, then suddenly this actor appears on the screen and is just hysterically funny. And I think everyone in the cast said, oh my gosh, this film might not be that bad. <laughs> and so I, I saw... Um, you know how great uh, Tom was playing Sir James Martin. And I always thought that what I had of that part was just so underwritten and unfunny. You know, how funny it is. How, how funny is it really? Church and Hill, you know, what lame material. But it, it, it wasn't lame the way, um, the way Tom did it. And he came for, I think, costume fittings. Uh, out to where we were shooting <laughs> and um, already I wanted to try to well he's here he said and so I said to the producer can we shoot something while he's here and they said um, we'll have to pay him <laughs> <laughs> so well, how much is that and I heard how much is oh that's nothing not we'll much <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote then a scene that <clears throat> And they said, but, but we don't have time for Kate. We have half an hour left in our shooting day. We don't have time for Kate to change. So I say, okay, we'll put Kate behind the door. <laughs> and we'll have uh, Sir James Martin at the door talking about the carriage. So that's how we shot that scene. And then as we were going along, there were just sort of more and more things thinking of for Sir James Martin as played by Tom Bennett. And so it really changed the film. One, one thing that's really interesting, I think, about uh, Sir James's dialogue is that um, his, his dialogue is very different to the others. Uh, the other characters have got a very precise way of speaking and very articulate. And Sir James uh, is often quite stilted. Uh, he's punctuated by, yeah, punctuated by laughter and so on. Okay, I don't know if you could talk about how, how you develop this sort of stylistic difference in the, in the speech. Well, anyone with a keen eye ear for dialects might notice I don't naturally <laughs> sound like everyone else in the film. So it pro there's probably a lot of that, really. I don't naturally come from this background. I don't sound like that. I seem to be able to inhabit idiots very quickly <laughs> and very efficiently, um, which is good because the Twelve Commandments scene, I was handed in the makeup chair... And I said to the second assistant director, oh, okay, great. When does Wit want to shoot this? Oh, as soon as you're out of hair and makeup. So, and luckily, I'm playing an idiot who doesn't quite know what he's talking about. So <laughs> lots of it was happy, <laughs> happy accident. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm searching for the word. Yeah, and that's the word. <laughs> so I, I think that, I don't know. I think it was, it was all a, a kind of happy accident. Yeah, well, I, th I think uh, as, as just as in my earlier question, I mean, this this is quite unusual. I think for your filmmaking wit to be introducing uh, lines quite quite that late into the process, and the Twelve Commandments uh, joke is is uh, you know it's one of my favourites in the film, and, and this, uh, as you say, came about at quite a late point. The Commandments is also a key point in the film. It's re referenced several times. So could you? Could it's you it's very odd how all that happened. Uh, there was a point where we had a potential investor in the film who's a devout Christian and wanted to invest in Christian films. So suddenly I started racking my brain for how we could get Christian themes into the movie. So suddenly there, I had a little sermon I wanted to deliver about aesthetics, so that became the church scene. And then I do feel that as, as a father, I feel that young people should honor their mother and father. I feel that very strongly. So we got the, the commandments in there, 
And then we had a delightful apostate Catholic um, producer um, who at one point mentioned the Twelve Commandments. And I said, save that. We have a scene for Sir James Martin. And for me, what really made that scene worthwhile was, okay, the Twelve Commandments, but then the idea that there are two you can take off. <laughs> That's, so there, there are only ten commandments you have to obey, but there are twelve commandments, so there are two you get to take off, uh, or whatever. And so uh, that that and th- but it was um, it, it was just a revelation the way that all uh, the actor pulled it out of the fire, as we said. I'd like to bring uh, Justin uh, into the into the conversation. I think I'd, I'd like to talk about uh, Charles uh, Vernon. He's a very kindly diplomatic character who is is one of the few characters that's, that uh, looks warmly uh, upon uh, Sir James. I'd just like to th- ask, you know, what was the difference, say, between uh, when you you originally uh, drafted this uh, this character and then how you worked together to develop the uh, the the, the, fi- the final character? Well, to go first, um, I think in the casting process, um, we sort of knew we wanted Charles Vernon to be bigger than it was in the, orig- in the Jane Austen original and in the original script. And so I think... Um, my impression is that we were adding material for Justin. I think we were expanding what, you, what we had from the... I think so, because when I first read the script, there wasn't as much as I ended up as <clears throat> I ended up saying. But I think, going back to Tom's point of him being able to in- inhabit, he says inhabit idiots, just Tom being able to be an idiot so swiftly and quickly. <laughs> I think, again, because I do tend to play kind of well-meaning but vague men. <laughs> um, I think when I auditioned for you, I was, I was particularly tired and I hadn't had a chance to learn the script. Well, in fact, you were able to see yeah. so, well, I was just sort of reading it from the camera. Going, well, I don't know if this... Sorry, I can't remember that bit. Uh, no, go on. Hmm. And then I thought, well, that, that, I won't get that job. And then... Of course, yes. The last thing, I, yeah. The next thing happens. We oh, that's exactly what we wanted. Like, good, because that's all I can do. <laughs> uh, one, one of the lines that I particularly uh, like from your character, and, and we, we see that uh, again at the very end of the film, is that I, I will find the citation. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, was this something that was? Uh, did this come in like the Twelve Commandments thing, kind of late into the process, or uh, was it always, always in there? Well, there were a couple of those repeats where various yeah. people say he's no Solomon yes. quite often, and things, but he's a bit of a rattler. Like they yeah. did that people are listening to each other thinking oh i'm going to say that later that's a good line which is sort of you know not not uncommon within that sort of i think also when you're presenting a film that's been referring to all kinds of things that um people might not be getting and they'll be very angry that you have something in a film that they're not getting if you sort of talk about researching it further and checking the citation <laughs> it puts us all in the same boat yeah. we're saying stuff we're not really sure <laughs> validity of anything well i think it did come because when <clears throat> Did it come in later that way when he said in her mean? And I remember the script and everyone's going, no one's going to know what, that's, yeah. what that means. Oh, well, in that case, I'll make you explain it quite, quite, quite consistently and then until people are bored and then they won't care. Maybe that's... <laughs> that's how the idea came into the film of having text on screen because um, I thought that no one would understand what we're saying with mean mm. from that poem. So we'll actually just put the text of the poem on the screen and people will know what he's talking about with mean. And then we'd done that and we said, well, we can do this with a letter too in the earlier thing. So the letter went back there. 
Yeah, I think the the letter when it when the text comes up on the letter, this obviously you've 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 adapted. Uh, uh, and I can't pronounce it. Epistola. I went to an Epistola. Essex, uh, thank novel. you. Essex Comprehensives. They don't teach you this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, 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 so a letter is kind of you know a, a very uh, good uh, technique for a novelist to sort of get to the uh, the thoughts of a character. But it's uh, I think that's a bit of a struggle for a filmmaker to bring to the screen someone writing and reading a letter. So I like the way that this is uh, illustrated, and that the the problem of adaptation itself is kind of illustrated in 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 that moment. Uh, yeah, I thought uh, we had sort of eliminated. I mean, the big temptation in adapting the epistolary novel was to have tons of letters uh, in the movie and people reading letters and all that. And I thought we'd sort of purge the film of letters essentially but in watching it afterwards I see there are actually quite a few letters in important moments so there's that letter and then there's the letter that comes with the the marriage of yes. Sir James and that kicks off your long disquisition about um, love Reason, reasons for marriage yeah <laughs> but what's that it's a it's just a nice moment when I say uh, yes no it happens all the time that, you know, that women marry idiots and then you're just on Emma's face <laughs> very very placid and not sort of saying but yeah Smiling, she smiles. Um, I, I would I'd like to ask you about um, uh, Tom and Justin about your scenes together. I think that um, uh, Justin and a lot of uh, a lot of the characters in the in the film, uh, the the humour is is in the words. And uh, I'm I'm not an actor, right? So uh, so so forgive me if I'm, I'm saying something dumb now. But um, when you deliver when you deliver them, you almost have to have quite like a straight kind of way of delivering it in order to allow the humour to 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 really come out. Whereas uh, with the Sir James character, uh, the, the, it's a they're very contrasting kind of performances. I'd, I'd like to I'd, I'd like to know how you sort of work together or um, well. I'm and I'd like to say we, we we sat down days beforehand and worked this all out and put the but um, we workshopped I think two yeah, or three weeks. We, yeah, several. We really had a long time going through all of this to, to pick up and make sure we were on different rhythms and cadences. But the truth of it is, it was quite last minute. Insofar as that, it doesn't like to give you a shooting schedule either. Which, so you don't know what you're filming until the night before when the scene says these are the scenes tomorrow, and you go. Oh, that's that's a big so one, isn't just, it? There's a lot to do. So th I think because you don't like actors to prepare, if that's you know right, or you don't like to be over rehearsed or overthought and and keep it quite spontaneous, which is, it's quite tricky with this. I don't I don't think I think Kate might have had a bit more advance notice because that that amount of dialogue and her she's got quite it. a lot of words. Yeah, she's actually had a lot of words to say, and she remembered them all. Nearly nearly all of them. Nearly all of them. Nearly all. So I think it's it's hard to do with that. So I think yeah, it was a lot of it was discovered like sort of in the moment, but we didn't. You didn't in my defence, yeah. In my defence, oh, not um, criticised. Nice. We, we have. Um, I mean, there is a scripted script, which is mm. most things, and I think those you did have. Yes. And I think we knew what days we were shooting those things. So you would know what day you were shooting those. But in the case of these two guys, we were trying to get you know more gold yeah. out of the mind yeah. because we we'd already agreed to pay them a certain amount and if we could extract more comic gold yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a better deal for us yeah. you've already flown me out to dublin yeah. <laughs> what more hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wait, did you find by uh, working with a non-canonical text, obviously this is uh, a novella that Jane Austen wrote when she was about 19, I think. Did uh, working with, uh, with a non-canonical text, did that mean you were more free to adapt than say if you, uh, if you adapted you know, Pride and Prejudice? Well, I think that the prospect of doing the great Jane Austen masterpieces to reduce them to a 90-minute film with all the sort of commercial pressures to make them wedding-oriented romances um, would have been really kind of depressing prospect. In this case, it was like we were into extra time or extra credit, and whatever we did, bringing it to the screen, would be sort of creating this for an audience that wasn't paying attention to it. But actually, I think we are closer in this adaptation to the original material than almost all the other adaptations. It's really, it's, she wrote a really funny manuscript. And she, the, what was encouraging was she had left it an early draft, hadn't finished it. So it was sort of, we had permission to sort of try to finish it in a way. We can't finish it the way Jane Austen would have finished it, which would have been wonderful, but we could finish it in, in our way. And I think it helped. Um, a lot having the new material with these actors and other actors coming in to make it not just letters between, I mean, sort of adapting letters between um, the Kate character and the Chloe character. I guess one of the things about the Lady Susan character and why, you know, it may, maybe it was attractive to you to, to adapt this, this novella um, is in your other films, you'll maybe correct me if you don't agree with this, but you're looking at a, a similar a society situation similar to Jane Austen and using them in a 20 or 21st century setting. Here, I think with Lady Susan, she's, um, you know, in, in some ways we can see her as a very modern character. She She's a single mother. Uh, she's very witty. She's very clear in her aims and, and, and so on. I mean, she's pretty much Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> um, so, uh, so seeing Kate in uh, Cold Comfort Farm uh, was a really inspirational. I was writing the script for Last Days of Disco, which we screened last night, and um, you know, struggled to grab her, get her to do that, and um, and then when I read this, um, I wasn't. Sh- when I first encountered the, 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 the original of Lady Susan, um, it was just shortly after we'd shot Disco and Kate was very young. And one of the things that encouraged me about the material was Kate Beckinsale could play this really well. It would be really great with Kate Beckinsale. But then it was like sort of 12 years before she'd be the age to play that part. And I dawdled in writing the script at 12 years and things worked out. I want to talk a little bit about the book and, and some more, more recent uh, things uh, shortly, but I think it's a good time to open to the audience. Have you got any questions about the film? I'm quite interested in the special relationship of the American characters and the English, you know, talking about people being sculpted in Connecticut, whereas all the English guys are complete blithering idiots. I mean, is this the revenge of the American? <laughs> Oh, I, I, I didn't see it that way. Um, so I had this experience with damsels in distress with 
one of the American actors pretending to have a British accent and it's revealed that she was in London for four weeks and she came back with this fake accent, which many people do. And we were so, so criticized by people who, you know, even though it's revealed at the end, I'm not sure if they got to the end, they just sort of attacked us for this bad accent, which was intentional. And um, so I was sort of allergic to the whole idea of an accent struggle of people, because no matter how good Chloe's accent was, no matter how good a job she did, people would be aware she's American, someone's going to find fault with it. And so, at one point, we initially were going to try to have her be English, but then someone said, well, you know, why, why couldn't she be American? And I'd read just so much about that period and the Tory exiles from the United States, the, the loyalists who came back to to London. There was the Delancey family where um, in, they were in New York and they went to Eton and, and Oxford and the inns of whatever, the inns for, for studying law. And they went back to the United States where they became, you know, the governors of the provinces. And so they quickly exiled themselves to London when our War of Independence started. And so there were a lot of characters like this. And I just knew that with the sort of attitudes between the two countries, after having done this film Barcelona years ago, the European-American attitudes, there's a lot of jokes. And that Connecticut could be a punchline. And Chloe and I both have origins in Connecticut, so it's sort of a, a joke for us. And a pleasure of this tour with the film was showing it in Hartford, Connecticut, where all that got a big laugh. <clears throat> Could you please talk a little bit about the music across your films? Because um, in Metropolitan, in this one, the kind of score is a, an overlay, generally, whereas in, say, like Disco, which is, has such an effervescent soundtrack, it's very intradigetic and features mainly where the characters can hear what's going on. So, And then obviously in this film as well, um, Frederica's singing is part of her reticence to be open and in front of an audience. So um, if you could elaborate a bit on that, please. Thank you. Music is really important in the editing of our films, and um, there's sort of a traditional way of of doing films where the films would be edited and then turned over to a composer, and the composer would do a score, which would then um, be recorded. and And I've just heard of very many disasters where the music that is done doesn't match, and it's sort of a hit or miss thing. and we love the idea of having music that already existed in some form and editing to that music and knowing exactly in our sort of test screenings exactly what the emotional reaction was going to be. I have seen films that I think are really good films but are kind of wrecked by the music. And so we wanted to be really, really careful about the music and how it changes the, the tone of everything. And so in the case of Metropolitan, um, there was sort of um, composer music, Smetna and, and, and Gilbert and Sullivan, but there was a lot of demos from the composer uh, Tom Judson who initially worked on the film and left us with many melodies from sort of his trunks who were cutting to Tom Judson melodies and then Mark Suazo was writing other material and so we've worked with Mark Suazo on everything um, and in the case of this film we were going back and finding semi-period music it's much more er, it's much earlier it's generally Baroque music in the, in the movie but we felt since it's earlier that's permissible so we were really cutting the film to to this music and then we recorded it in Dublin the Windmill Lane Studios and just some incredibly wonderful opera singers and musicians um, we found out that the the Irish Film Orchestra and the Irish Baroque Orchestra exactly overlap. 
So they were very quick to pick up on all the broke music. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Yeah, we, we see a lot of films with uh, synthesized string arrangements or pianos and so on. So it's really nice to hear, uh, you know, real instruments uh, playing. I mean, actually, you're in Death of Stalin, and that's also got a very beautiful uh, music that's very. Uh, he composed. You, comp- you composed it. Well. You conducted it. You conducted it. Yeah, I wasn't. Well, I sort of. I was allowed to conduct an orchestra very briefly, but they were, they were instructed not to pay great attention to me. <laughs> it would have been a mess, but yeah. But your character conducted. My character is actually beautifully, very truthfully. <laughs> yeah. One of the many great delights of your work is is the spoken word. Can you talk about how you visualize that? Do you see kind of these tracking shots when you're writing the screenplay, or do you kind of come up with the compositions more when you're discussing it with the heads of department and, and the working process with that, please? This kind of film, the walk talk, is like the, the, the standard thing we rely on because we want to say a lot of things. We, there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of story in dialogue. And we want people to be able to look at something as interesting as possible while there is the dialogue. So the walk talk is important and all these things. And I think the actresses and damsels and distress were always talking about um, speaking quickly and walking slowly was the instruction from the the, uh, the camera crew because they'd run out of track. They don't want to set too much track. But as far as the spoken word, um, I really try to speak everything. Um, and I think I annoy people in the cafes where I'm writing because I have headphones on listening to, to other music, but speaking the dialogue as I write it and trying to, when in revising things, always trying to speak, speak, speak everything so that when it gets to the actors, you know, it's, it's humanly possible to, to speak it. Maybe they disagree, but I thought it was humanly possible. But certainly, some of the the, the longest scenes. I know Xavier Samuel was always very keen to move. He's, he's a young man, and us old actors. No, no, I'm, I'm able to sit down for the whole scene. That's all right. We prefer just standing just in standing one spot. Once, but much easier. Don't touch anything. There's no continuity. Uh, but Xavier was always, oh, can I can I sort of walk across the room during this bit? And you were just very polite. You go, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> because it would just, you know, you obviously knew how you wanted it to, to play out. And in fact, all the scenes I think work beautifully because everyone is quite sort of desperately trying to hold on to some sense of you know, propriety and decorum. I'm going to stand here and, and look. Well, in fact, the very funny scene with Tom, where it is that extraordinary speech about Churchill, is, is almost sort of one take. And you, you yeah. cut to the back of his a couple of times, but it's mostly, yeah, it's mostly just one. It's very one, unfussy one of, yeah. editing. They're, yeah. by and large, they're locked off. You know, a dirty two or a single, or and yeah. you because the dialogue is that good, you can just sit there and yeah. watch it. It doesn't. It doesn't need flashy cuts yeah. or you know pans or crashes. You want to watch that, and so actually, it is a it's a beautifully composed shot, but it just it sits there and invites you to listen. That's a really long um, scene when um, Sir James Martin um, arrives and goes into his. Disquisition. I, or, I could have or, done it quicker. Or double, I chose not to. Or, or, or double disquisition about Church Hill. And so I, as the writer, I was really aware of all the repetition. So I was thinking, well, we really have to, we can't have that repetition. We've got to take that out. And so we tried it sort of, and it was so much better just going on and on with Church and Hill and Church. And, 
repetition. I, I, I'm a fan of the, the group The Fall. I don't know if you know them. Uh, and uh, their first single had got a song called Repetition, which it said, these are the three R's. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Uh, anyway, uh, a little digression there. I just want to ask, uh, we've got a few minutes left, and I just want to ask a couple more questions. Uh, firstly, about uh, the book, because uh, I think uh, it's interesting to think about Sir James's character uh, in terms of the book. Obviously, we, we you know, seeing the film, we're encouraged to laugh at uh, Sir James's character, but um, there is some dialogue which in in the film which is which is quite sympathetic to him, and in the in the in the book you've you've kind of uh, or your narrator who is a nephew of Sir James uh, aims to rehabilitate the character of both Sir James and Lady Susan. Uh, I just want to yeah ask you about how it was to revisit your character and and uh, and and sort of switch the perspective. Well, the story of the love and friendship um, novel, which we have tons of copies upstairs, and we're all anxious to sell you as many as you'll take. Um, I'm going to buy them for these guys because they inspired a lot of the novel. Um, so what happened was I was struggling with this project, not getting it financed, and um, but I had a script that uniquely among the scripts I'd written, people enjoyed reading because it's based on really good Jane Austen material, and it's sort of a dramatization of. Uh, of this epistolary novel. And so a publisher looked at the script and offered to make it a novel, wanted a novel, even without knowing there was going to be a film. And so I had the contract, um, you know, well in advance to do this novel, but of course I hadn't uh, started it and it was frantic. I was supposed to turn in the, the novel before we started shooting, but you're frantic preparing things. And so I, I didn't do that. But the moment we stopped the picture edit, um, I, I, faced that and said I don't want to just do a dramatization of you know the original and I had the experience of working with these actors and all this comic material that came out and among the research for the novel was reading her nephew's memoir of her like the only things we really know about Jane Austen is from this memoir her Victorian rather wealthy rather aristocratic pretentious nephew you know I guess the the um the the father had married well or the and and so he was sort of in a different class than Jane Austen. So he's looking back in her era and her family, um, sort of with the Victorian snobbery, a bit of class snobbery. It was very deprecating and pretentious. And then I was thinking of um, Sir James Martin, and Sir James Martin married Lady Susan. His sister's son would be Lady Susan's nephew, and to have this nephew adoring his. Um, aunt and defending her from everything so turning everything around everything bad about her becomes good and so it gave us a lot of comic material and also even the Charles Vernon character there was sort of a lot more material there about Charles Vernon just from Justin's performance that I could use in the novel to expand that because um, I mean it's really wonderful the original um, Jane Austen but it's sort of sensory deprivation because it's just so much the, the two women writing each other. And we actually include that in the novel too. So it's a really two for one book because we include the original uh, Jane Austen, beautifully printed and set off. And then we have Rufus uh, Martin Colonna's comments on that text, which he disagrees with almost everything. And so it's... It's a very complicated novel, I have to say. I, I think, yeah, I'll, there's I'll, some laughs. <laughs> just, yeah, to mention briefly, there is commentary on the Ten Commandments or the Twelve Commandments, and uh, Sir James is vindicated in the book. Also, that there are that uh, there's you, a reason for there that. Are, yes. There are extra commandments. Accidentally, but, you got it right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we we, we 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 do have to wrap up very shortly. But I do I do want to ask. Um, 
in in some of your films where you've you've used the same actors sometimes you know uh, or sometimes they're playing the same part in in last days of disco you have characters from uh, metropolitan and barcelona uh, but you also use the same actors in different roles and and as well with um with with love and friendship and also with your upcoming television series uh, cosmopolitan and uh, both tom and justin will be in that is it if you could talk a little bit about that and i think as well with the with the continuity of of actors i I wonder if you're encouraging us to see a relationship between, uh, for example, the characters in Last Days of Disco and Love and Friendship and also the characters in Love and Friendship and uh, Cosmopolitan upcoming. Well, that would be like 30 minutes, so I, I'll, I'll reduce it to two. Uh, so it, it is true that I, it's a huge inspiration to know the actors and see what they do and be in the editing room watching the delights of their performance and cutting out the best part and just leaving the other. And, and um, so you're, you're also then writing something and you just want the actors to come back. You know, how can they come back? And so in The Cosmopolitans, we did a pilot for Amazon a while ago, and they gave me a commission to write the scripts, and Amazon's changed direction. All my friends have been sacked, <laughs> as, as usually happens. And uh, so it might not be at Amazon, but I think it'll be somewhere. And um, so there are parts for, for Justin and Tom. And so um, I really hope that that'll happen and we'll be able to work together again. Okay, great. Can, can, we, can we just say one more question? Just short question i was just wanting to know a little bit more about your writing process you mentioned going to cafes and so on but typically these these films are very heavy on 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 the word and the dialogue so how long does it take you to to write the script and and how often in the day do you write and so on and so on well if you can try to think of sort of the most embarrassing process imaginable the most embarrassing way to do something inefficiently you know, lazily, everything bad, that's my process. So, uh, you know, sometimes I think it's like, you know, 90 minutes a day, you're actually doing something uh, worthwhile. But, but one of the crazy things is that, like, the best ideas never come when you're sitting down trying to write. It's always when you're... Um, in, in the movie Barcelona, we have a lot of shaving jokes because when I sort of go to finally shave... Um, I, all the ideas would come. And going down the stairs, I don't have many sta- going down the stairs jokes, but going down the stairs, suddenly you get all the ideas are walking. And so um, it just I just find it really horrible the starting a new project. And I think one of the charms of doing um, the novel was to be able to continue in the same world with the same characters and using the material we have and expanding on and adding new things. And in a TV show, I guess one of the attractions is to be able to keep the same actors and characters going and, and adding to that. I, I find the really, really painful thing is originating it that, you know, the, I just think it's just terrible what I first write. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible. And it's not until you get to the thing of rewriting finally and all that but thank you very much for that question thanks so much for listening hope you enjoyed that Q&A in the meantime if you'd like to subscribe to the show we put out a new episode every week and you can do so by visiting iTunes and Acast hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.